0: Can I have actors to places? Stand by for curtain call. Go. Stand by for cross lights. Go. That's a wrap. Good show, everybody.
1: Welcome to Echo Offstage. Theater women speak. Echo Theater Dallas has been amplifying women's voices on stage since 1998. Now we invite you off stage, behind the curtain, for an intimate conversation with theater's most influential and innovative women. I'm your host, Katherine Whiteman, and I am here with Christina Quintana, also known or maybe better known as CQ. I'm thrilled to see you. I'm so excited about this conversation. And let's just dig in. Give me some high points so that people can understand who you are. Tell us a little bit of the CQ story.
0: Sure, Catherine. Thank you, first of all, so much for having me. I'm really excited. You all are such an amazing crew, and and have so much energy and enthusiasm. And it's and it's really an honor to be here. Um, a bit, a bit about me. Um, I really am. You know, my my heart is in the theater. That's really the biggest part of my background. But I really consider myself a storyteller who works across genre. Um, My family is is Cuban. I'm a proud Cuban-American. And I grew up in New Orleans. And I really kind of consider both of those parts of my identity really huge, even though I've now been in New York for over a decade, which feels, I feel like maybe that's like I'm finally bridging the like, real new yorker territory (laughs) um but yeah i write you know i'm really at a point too in my life where i'm trying to very much embrace and not shy away from the fact that i love just telling stories and across genre too you know and kind of starting to blend over into the world of podcasts and i've done some tv film stuff and also you know hoping to get you know my novel published eventually so it's that's that's a little bit
1: about me Yeah, well, and I tell you what, that's a nice bite for us to start with, but folks, there's even more. (laughs) So so let's dig in a little bit. Since Echo is a theater concerned with women's voices, let's start with theater. How did you get started in theater? What was the CQ journey to theater?
0: You know, it's so funny that you're saying that to me because I actually just received a Facebook message from my high school drama teacher. Um, And it's so funny because... I went to this school called Earthline Academy in New Orleans. It's like, it's a special place. It's like the oldest continuously operating all-girls school in North America, actually, which is pretty incredible. And uh, they had this theater. The theater club was basically called the Queen's Players, as in Our Lady. And uh, I was a basketball kid. I mean, look at me. I, I basically, I know this is a podcast, but... If you couldn't get it, uh, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty gay, but I, um, at that point, I, was in, I went to a Catholic school for eight years, and I loved it, honestly, um, and I was a big basketball player. Not that you have to be gay to be a basketball player, I'm just putting it out there, uh, but I played basketball, and actually, there was a real turning point because when I went to high school, the way that the basketball season ran, you couldn't do basketball and do theater, so I kind of like had this turning point where I just was like I wanted to do theater so badly and I had had the chance to play basketball for years and I was like I just have to try like I have to give this a shot like I just knew I just like because when I was in middle school hilariously like we had to write this play and I like you know I remember like kind of taking it out. like I knew that that was what I wanted to do and like so I sort of like took it under my wing that I was like, I was going to be the playwright behind this. And so that was kind of the beginning of it for me. And then, you know, there's this really great adjunct arts high school called NOCA New Orleans, New Orleans Center for the Creative Arts. And so I started doing like their weekend and summer programs. And that was like, you know, in the drama uh, department. And it just really became all the more serious for me at that point where I was just like, I want to do this, like I, and I really thought I wanted to be a performer, which is hilarious. Um, I love making people laugh. I think that was really, as a performer, one of my favorite things. And so even when I went to college, I was in like a a sketch group. Um, So anyway, long-winded way of saying that's how I started in the theater.
1: So, So a real love for basketball, but oh, yeah. the theater thing just kept pulling you in, is what it sounds like. Yeah. Pulled you in enough that you graduated with an MFA in playwriting from Columbia, and you are an alumni, alumna, <laughs> alum something, <laughs> of Ensemble Stage Theater's Youngblood program. That sounds fascinating. I don't know anything about it. Please tell us a little bit about the Youngblood theater program and how the experience of being a part of that shaped your writing craft.
0: So EST, Ensemble Studio Theater, has this uh, thing called Youngblood, which is their playwrights. It's specifically for playwrights under 30. And it's this intense, kind of amazing group of playwrights. And it's these two guys named Graham and RJ who run it. And actually, when I was when I was still an undergrad, I had this experience where Amy Herzog, the playwright, I met her at Williamstown because I was doing I did summer stock uh, at Williamstown. I was in the apprentice company because I got this scholarship through my college, and I met Amy Herzog. It was like my first time, really, like meeting professional playwrights. And I met Amy Herzog. I met Melinda Lopez, which was incredible because it was like the first. She was the first Latina. Playwright I ever met, and like it was incredible. But Amy Herzog said to me, I did this workshop with her, and she was like, When you move to New York, join Youngblood. She said that to me, and I was like, Okay, I'll keep that in mind. So I was in grad school in New York, and I reached out, and they were like, Wait until you're done with grad school, and then you know, reapply. Or I hadn't applied yet, but they were like, Apply when you're done with grad school, because it's as I would learn, Youngblood sort of like is grad school in a way. It's like, I mean, it's a chance to, as a 20-something playwright, have your work just thrown up. I mean, there's weekly meetings with this incredible group of playwrights. I mean, I have to say, I just grew so much as a writer being around these other writers, week to week, and the writers that have come out of this program are Amy Herzog, you know, uh, Will Arbery, you know, like honestly, like Mike Liu came out of the program. It, it's it's an incredible group of playwrights that have come out of this program. So it's like to be part of Youngblood really does mean something. And what was really special about it for me too was like, I think I read this quote the other day because I was reading this book called Grit, and I wish I could remember off the top of my head, but. Grad school, I feel like, was about competition in some way, which is a little unfortunate. And I think that what Youngblood taught me was that actually the word compete, the root of the word compete, actually means to work alongside. And I think that what Youngblood taught me, which was so incredible, was that actually we're all here, we all have our own voices, and we're all here making each other better. And my success is your success and it really was an incredible group to be a part of for 3 years and i'm still you know in touch with many of the writers that i met through the program and it's it really is a special a special thing
1: that that really touches me because so many times you think of artists being solitary creatures unless they come together to do a thing, a Mm -hmm. play, a concert, um, a collaborative visual art piece. And so I don't know if people outside our circles know how much we need community.
0: Oh, yeah. And it
1: sounds like you guys had extraordinary community with Youngblood.
0: Yeah. It really taught me about... I mean, I, I think that playwrights in particular are really good about, like, being in community with each other and, like, supporting each other. And I really felt that. But uh, Youngblood really does breed that. There's just like something about about that environment, you know, where you're really just trying to make each other better.
1: Yeah. Well, and it sounds like really fertile ground. You know, it's, it's like you said, so many, you know, great playwrights are, are, are coming through this program. So there's something, something's working. So let's talk about the plays. The first thing that I want to ask you about, about playwriting is how you find a title, because that's mm. the... And I I hate to say it this way because titles are important for so much more than this, but it's also your first marketing tool. It's the first thing that's going to grab the attention to somebody who says, hmm, maybe I better look into that one. So how do you come up with your titles?
0: That's such a good question. I mean, honestly, I feel like I scour. I find poetry is usually like the first place where I go. Like I'm a big lover of poetry and like a lot of my background, especially in New York, Um, Has been like in the poetry community. I I, my first job in the city was working at the 92Y at the Poetry Center, and I just feel like incredibly, incredibly inspired by the poets. And I really do believe that playwriting and poetry are siblings, very closely connected. Like Lorca, it's my favorite one of my favorite quotes. People have heard me say it, but Lorca says that said that uh, a play is a poem standing up, and I really think that's true. And sometimes I feel like it's more obvious than others or I've had a title that hasn't quite fit right that I've had to change. But oftentimes it kind of is just like when you find it, it just like sort of you have a feel for it. I have a play called Enter Your Sleep that it was actually the title. is from a Margaret Atwood poem. And I just really had to search for it. It took me a long time to find it. And, you know, a play like Scissoring, I actually really resisted that title. It was a different play entirely. And I honestly was kind of like, you know, as my friend who's a poet actually suggested that title and it actually, because it made me uncomfortable and because it made the woman that I was seeing at the time uncomfortable, I knew that it was right, you know? And then there's been other titles that have just been like clear as day, like Azul, my play Azul, like that title just came to me. Even Song was so braided in what that show is because it was about the choral experience and I knew I wanted to set it within, you know, the shelter at the church. So it was, like, just kind of an elemental part of it. Um, Citizen scientists too, felt very, uh, you know, obvious because it was... that's what it was about. So it was always that title. Uh, the Great Lonely Roamer and the Night That Changed Everything was you know, again, that one was one that just sort of came really naturally. Like I became obsessed with polar bears and I was reading all about polar bears. And when I learned, you know, it's obviously a part of the play, but this idea of the great lonely roamer, I also was like really into at the time, I think I was really trying to experiment myself with like form and the way that the play lived on the page. And it sort of felt like the longer title kind of felt appropriate for the tone of the play, you know? So it's always different.
1: Yeah. And and a lot of different influences. And that's, a good thing, especially for an artist like you who doesn't mind crossing the lines of of going, you know, between different genres and that kind of thing. I love it that you're a poet, by the way. It's poetry is so huge in my life. My son Mm. is a poet and I just um, that's amazing because I love words and language and 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 having the opportunity to to talk to somebody who loves them, too, is Okay, so it's thrilling. I'll just I'll just throw it out there. It really <laughs> is. So I want to ask you um, about a writing workshop that you recently led, mm-hmm. and and focusing on a writer's inner critic. What does inner critic mean to you?
0: Mm. So I honestly, I mean, I think when I think about inner critic, and that's one of the fun things about the workshop. And I really have started doing this. I'm actually going to do a second workshop in this series that I'll I'll actually update you guys about because it's going to be through the playwrights realm, but. I was really thinking a lot about like my impetus, especially in the wake of this kind of pandemic of like why I wanted to become a writer. And I really think a huge part of that is about healing and about finding a space for healing and writing. And I think that for a lot of people, and I think for all of us, writing can be scary. But for me, to be honest, writing has always been like a really sacred healing thing. And so I kind of wanted to sort of bring that process in. And so for me, I mean, my inner critic is really loud, like I think a lot of us, but I think it's a gift and a curse. I think that it makes me good. and I think it it forces me forward and forces me to, to strive for the best. Um, but I think also that voice can be really tough. And so the whole thing of the exercise, which actually you could find, the workshop is available online. You can actually find the free uh, workshop through the theater commons. Uh, And the whole idea was naming your inner critic. So rather than having your critic be your foe, make it your friend. So naming your inner critic, you know, my inner critic was Bill. (laughs) And because as I discussed in the workshop, that sort of I had this like white man critic, like older (laughs) white man critic. And so, but making him my friend and inviting him into the room. And so the idea is rather than having that voice you know, be a demon, how can that voice actually support you? And what is, what is that voice telling you? And how can you be in conversation with that voice? You know, and, and it actually kind of, it all, that actually started too from like a therapy session where I was like, I want to make this into a workshop where my therapist was like, what's, what, why are you here? It was the idea was, why are you here, Bill? Why are you hurting? Wow. Um, because right. Why he's hurting is why I'm hurting. Right. So I think it's actually can be a really powerful and healing process to engage with that in our
1: writing. Well, in that same vein, um, the phrase medicinal write playwriting is something that you coined. And it is it seems to me that it would grow out of that or maybe it was the thing that inspired you going in that direction. Can you tell us what that that phrase means to you?
0: Yeah. And to me, it really is exactly that. It's like, how can we, you know, in terms of writing, trying to explore writing as a healing space and so when I think of medicinal playwriting, it's it's exactly that. It's, it's not approaching writing as like some scary obstacle. It's like, how is writing as in medicine is like a tool for us, you know? And I think part of that is the freedom of being like, listen, like how many times have I started something that doesn't end up living off the page or in a Word document or in my Dropbox or in my notebook? And like, and that's okay, you know, like it's okay. Not everything that we write is going to be like a golden nugget, you know, <laughs> like and it's also about process. Right. Because it's like, how many times also has there been something that I've written that then has been carved into something again, you know?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting to hear you talk about it that way, because when we interviewed the playwright Anne Timmons, she yeah. referred to having a play and having to kill her little darling.
0: Oh, yeah. I can't remember it I always get it confused was it Elliot or was it Auden but it's I love that yeah killing your darlings is so important yeah, and the thing sure.
1: that occurs to me is that maybe you just remove the little darling carefully from the thing that it's in and put it somewhere in suspended animation until you really need it. (laughs) At least that's how I'm going to think about it from now on.
0: (laughs) No, I think it's, you know, years ago, I'll, like, I've never forgotten this and it stays so close with me. So uh, the poet Dana Levin was one of my teachers in undergrad. And to this day, I, I, I think she's such an incredible poet and teacher, which is like, To be an incredible writer and teacher is a real gift, I think. To be an incredible teacher or incredible writer is an incredible gift. But she's one of the greatest teachers I think I've ever had. And she once said, you know, for one of her books, it was like her second book or her third book, she actually mined all of this material that she had written in grad school that she never thought she was ever going to use. But, like, she kind of stole it from herself. And she felt like she was getting away with something when she published the book because it was all these this material that really... she It wasn't really new, you know? And so she that was her advice, was, like, never throw anything away because you just never know when you're going to use it, you know, in what form, you know? Just because... I can't even tell you how many times I've gone back and looked at old things and re-sort of purposed things or moved things around or just changed it and took the seed of it, you know?
1: I want to ask you, in sort of a follow-up question to to all of this, we sort of started this part of the discussion about that inner critic. So has your relationship with Bill changed (laughs) over time?
0: I think yes. You know, there's a thing about, I think it's anywhere, but I do think in New York too, especially, that's It's like being among, you know, the greatest artists and that kind of pressure as well as that kind of power, right? And I think that something that happens for all artists, I think, is that balance between the work and doing the work and making the work great and the, you know, the outside voices and the compare and despair and the whole, you know, the whole machine of it, right? I think that, funnily enough, I, I think probably when I was in my early 20s and first came to New York, I think that I had more confidence, which is funny, because then I'll I'll look back at drafts that I thought were so great, and now I'm like, <laughs> which is a great thing, right? It's a beautiful thing to be able to look at your work and actually see the growth, and I can really see that. I really can. It's so relative. You know, I, I was having a conversation once, oh, pretty recently, with a friend, and I was this playwright that I know who's much further along career-wise, I feel like, than I am. And she said to me, you know, I've always... J- I had just gotten this Audible commission, which is wonderful. I'm in the third class of the Emerging Playwrights Commission. And she said, wow, I really want one of those. I've wanted one of those for so long. And I just had this moment of, like, God, it just was, like, such a... You know, it was one of those resets of, like... We all are that little person. We all have that inner critic that's feeling like, I'm not good enough. I'm this isn't, what am I doing? Like what is like why am I do I even want to write this? But at the end of the day, I think the voice that's stronger is, I believe in this. This is something. I will keep going, and its it really is. I think it's a constant battle. I, I don't think that ever goes away, you know?
1: Yeah, it, it, but it's such a good perspective on how to keep growing and how to keep challenging yourself. Because yeah. if you've got the gift for words, it's so important that the stories are told. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's so it's critical that the stories are told because for so long so many of us have had, have had the story from one perspective. Right. And we need all of the perspectives.
0: And honestly, having somebody like I've been thinking about this so much, but like what it means both as mentors and people who have experienced mentorship, like My college was this little college called the College of Santa Fe. had a really great creative writing program. had theater, but didn't really have like playwriting. So I was always, I was really lucky because I was taking fiction. I was taking poetry. They were sort of like very supportive about me, like writing plays and stuff like that. And there was this guy, the South African professor named Mark Bear, who was this very intimidating and like everyone adored him. You know what I mean? And like, we all were just like sort of obsessed with him. And I remember... I organized this reading of like a short play of mine and years later, as I was in New York, I get a a Facebook message from him. And he said to me something along the lines of you have a great talent. And if you work hard, it's like going to get me like emotional, but he was like, you have a great talent. And I believe that if you work hard, you can really have a beautiful career. And it's, It's like, honestly, he passed away um, a few years ago and I will never forget that. And so I think like just it's it's really it can mean so much to have just like that one voice when you're in a dark place say to you, like, just keep going like you can do this, you know,
1: that's so beautiful and so affirming. And it's wonderful to have that affirmation when you need it. Oh, my yeah, gosh. It, I
0: know, right? Yeah, We all do, right? Like, we all go through. I mean, I feel like recently I've been just hearing so many different stories about, you know, people. Uh, I just was, I don't know if you watch Shit's Creek, that show Shit's Creek.
1: I'm starting to.
0: <laughs> it's so fun, right? You Give, give it a chance because it takes, it's, I feel like it takes a minute to get into yeah. it. But, uh, but the woman Annie Murphy, who played Alexis, she hadn't gotten an acting job for two years, but she decided to go for that audition and she got that job you know like it's so crazy when you hear about those kind- the guy who started Amazon was fired from his job before he started Amazon
1: that says a lot right there because crazy? Amazon. You know, my goodness. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you, and this is chi- changing directions just a little bit, but one of the things that I loved when I was learning about you via your website is that you do not shy away from putting fantastical elements into your plays. I mean, I think in my generation, you grew up thinking, well, plays are about relationships and historical things. and da, da, da. Nah, <laughs> plays can be about whatever your imagination says the play should be about. Right. So Invisible Rocket Ships. Okay, uh, <laughs> polar bear talking polar bears. You mentioned uh, lonely roamer a few minutes ago, so I, I'm thinking about that talking polar bear. Talk about the magic that yeah. you are drawn to to include in your plays.
0: You know, I have to say, so my my real like first like ongoing experience of professional theater was when I was in London. I studied abroad in London, which was amazing was it it was incredible. I had never in my life. I grew up in New Orleans, like there's a, you know, there's a little bit of theater, but not like that. You know, not like New York, not like it, I had never experienced. I saw 30 productions in a semester. Like I would go, I would stand, I would just like any anyway I could see it. I was going to see it. And I feel like that experience really was so formative for me because I just saw an imagination Um, you know, I saw a lot of like, well, quote, well made plays a lot of, but I also saw a lot of weird stuff, and a lot of wacky stuff and a lot of like, stretching the form. And to me, to be perfectly honest, I think as, like, who I am, like, as a Cuban American person, like, there is, you know, my lineage is in, you know, this, the world of magic realism, the world of, You know, when I read Ronaldo Arenas' Before Night Falls, I was like, I just felt such a kinship with the way that he writes and the poeticism and the way that sort of he drifts between worlds. And so I think it's a combination of something that was always in me that I actually didn't even maybe fully recognize, like how deeply rooted in my own roots is. But then sort of when I had the experience of being pushed into this world of professional theater where the things that I was most excited about were the ones that were pushing the limits of like, what does a play look like? How does it breathe? You know, what is the magic? And I I honestly think as I write, you know, from writing in different genre, I really am always thinking about like what is it about this play that makes it a play? What makes it something that should be on stage? Because to have something on stage is a different animal than having something on a screen. And not to say that you can't have magic on screen and I love that too. But, you know, theatricality excites me. It really does. And I and I really am always kind of thinking with every play that I write like how can I push the boundaries of what a play is?
1: You've spent a part of your career as a playwright and a Mm -hmm. part of your career as a poet. It all comes together. But you've also spent time in in TV land.
0: Yes. (laughs) So
1: I want to ask you about the difference between working in a writer's room and writing a play.
0: Yeah, it's very different. I mean, call me when I'm a showrunner and we'll see how different. Um, It's, (laughs) you know, I was working on a network show. So that's very specific, too, in terms of what is required. And there's a lot of voices there's a lot of feedback you know it was 10 of us in the room first of all which was really big um it's just you know it's so different (laughs) it's just because when you're writing a play you i mean as many people as are involved obviously like you're in conversation with a director you're you know in conversation with actors it is a team-built process but at the end of the day like When you're a writer on a show that isn't the showrunner, your job is to support the vision of the showrunner and what they want that show to be, especially when it's a brand new show and you don't know how it lives yet, you know? Because if it's a show that's been on for a long time, then you're following the model. Like, I have a friend who just started working on SVU last year, and, like, that is a well-run machine, you know what I mean? So she, more than anything, was learning how to write a show for SVU, right? Like, how to write an SVU show. Whereas my experience in the first season of a brand new show was what is this show, how does it live, and how do we create and emulate within our own episodes what the showrunner wants this show to be? So it's a really interesting experience and it's very much about supporting the team and I think there's a lot that's helpful about being a playwright because I just think that playwrights are inventive storytellers and so character-driven often, and that's why so many playwrights are writing for television. But it is different. I mean, it's different in the sense of when I write a play, you know, at least in the beginning, I, I can make it whatever I want it to be. But I also haven't been a showrunner yet. And so perhaps, hopefully, someday I'll have a show that is mine, and then I will be the one who gets to decide how it lives Besides the producers, because there's always going to be those voices.
1: <laughs> yes, and and we could talk about that, but I'm not even going in that direction. <laughs> but it does beg the question, CQ. Mm-hmm. If you could magically have that show, do you have any idea what it would be?
0: Well, I have a few. I have a few ideas. I have a few things that I'm in the process of pitching, and uh, one is actually an adaptation of Christina Garcia's Monkey Hunting, which is really the incredible basis for a show. It's it's a book that's particularly about the Chino-Cubano experience. And I've never in my life found another novel that sort of talks about Asian Latinos. Um, and so Christina's been amazing. And she's been totally open about, like, you do what you want to do with it. You have free reign, which is super exciting. So we kind of have taken the story that she's already given us and pushed it forward and kind of have this, like, deep dive that sort of looking at this modern day young woman, this Barnard student in New York, and their experience sort of realizing that they have this piece of their history that they've never known. And so it takes us all the way back to 18th century Cuba with Chen Pan, who was actually one of, there was a whole, there's a whole legacy of Chinese men who were actually sold into slavery in Cuba. Um, And it's a whole history that a lot of people don't even know about. And so we're really looking at sort of the web of that. so many of us that have these complicated braided histories and how sort of we weave back and forth between China, Cuba, the United States, as well as uh, Vietnam at one point. So that's one of them. And then I have this other... Concept that I'm really excited about, which is called Career Gay, which is basically like a workplace um, cable comedy, uh, looking at a community of a, a kind of like a Glad-like organization and sort of the kind of hijinks that are involved there, but a little bit more. Maybe a little bit more of an insecure than like a Parks and Rec sort of thing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering which direction you would go. And I'll tell you, I'll, I'll be a fan of both shows. I, <laughs> I appreciate see them both, that, So <laughs> I
0: appreciate that.
1: <laughs> I want to see that happen. So let me, let me ask you this about playwriting. Yeah. Does the act or the process of playwriting when you're on that journey, because you are on a journey when you're, when you're writing a play, does it change you? Do you think you're different after you finish the process than, you know, when you started it?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I I really do think that... uh, Listen, I have thought so much in my life about, you know, the idea of audience versus, like, what an audience is getting from my work versus, like, what I'm getting from my work. And especially, like, I worked with Chuck Mee, who's very much like, do what you love and fuck the rest. That's kind of like his mantra. So I thought a lot about that. And I think that for me, what my writing, as I've kind of alluded to earlier, but it really is a healing space for me, you know? And I think that every play that I have worked on in my life and every piece of writing that I've worked on in my life has been a space for catharsis. And I think that I could absolutely point to every one of my plays and tell you some, at least one thing that I've gotten from it emotionally, you know? And so I think that's honestly why it's hard when people even ask me like, what's your favorite of your plays? I I don't know if I could really say, because I really think they've all given me something, you know?
1: I want to ask you about your play Scissoring. That was a yeah. finalist in the National Graduate Playwriting Competition in 2013, 2014. Yeah. You had a world premiere in 2018. Yeah. And it was published in twenty nineteen. So whoo, long journey. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to get it done. So talk about what that journey from writing this award winning play to actually getting it published. What's that like?
0: Absolutely. That's such a great uh it's a great conversation to have and also it's always a good reminder to kind of go back there too. That play had such a long journey. Um So even before all that, before it was scissoring, it was actually a play called Hearsay that I wrote But I actually started when I was in college. And then when I was in grad school, actually, I was really thinking about what to approach for my thesis. And funnily enough, speaking of Chuck Mee, who is like literally the most laissez-faire professor ever, suddenly was like, I really think that you should do this for your thesis. (laughs) And I remember the funny thing, because I started bringing in pages for it. And at the time, I was really resistant only because I was like, I've spent so much time on this play. Like, I kind of wanted maybe just work on a different thing for this, you know, like, I, I don't know. But ultimately, I was like, okay, this is the right moment for this. So I, at that point, you know, did a bunch of revisions to the play. We did, And I did it as a workshop, as my thesis from grad school. And that was when it got the Alliance Candida. It was a finalist for this thing at the the Alliance, which was amazing. And afforded me the opportunity to go down to Atlanta and have a reading of the play and meet some really amazing playwrights, including uh, Madri Shekar and Andrew Hinderaker and uh, Lindsay Ferrantino, all people who are still in my life. And I... Really, at that point, though, to be honest, because when it comes to plays, and I think a lot of things, but really with plays, the hard thing is, is like, once it's sort of had a season of sort of circulating, it sort of is not dead, but it's really kind of like, okay, what else do you got? You know what I mean? Like, it's a great, this is a great, this is great, but like, not quite, maybe we don't really want to produce it. So like, okay, what else? What's next? So... For me, that was really hard at the time. You know, I was coming out of grad school and I was kind of like I'd had this alliance thing, which was awesome. And I got this small commission from Actors Express Theater down there, which was really cool. That's actually how I started The Great Lonely Roamer through this small commission. Um, And I was like, you know, what am I doing? And I at that point, really, you know, I was working this full time job and I was really like, I just was writing plays for myself. I was just like, you know, nobody's asking me to write these plays. I didn't have representation or anything. And I was just writing and literally, you know, working on other stuff. And really, I kind of would have these moments of inspiration where I'd be like, oh, maybe, I, you know, I remember coming back to New Orleans for this experience in 2017. And I was like, I think I want to revisit that. You know, I think it's time maybe for me to revisit it. Funnily enough, then in 2018, early 2018, I get a call from the artistic director of Intar, which Intar is the oldest Latino theater company uh, operating in the United States. And so Lou, who I'd met before, and I like was kind of, you know, listen, I just assumed when he asked for plays that it was like the same, like, you know, God bless, but they, it happens a lot. Right. Your theaters are like, great, let's see what you're working on. And I was like, OK, cool. I'll send him a bunch of stuff really having no expectations. So then I get this call from him and he's like, hey, so we have this grant money and like, I want to produce your play. And he was like, I'd like to do scissoring, but I want you to pick. And he was like, what do you say? Like, let's put it up. And I was like, wow. And I was like, it's so funny because at that point Azul was sort of circulating and starting to get a lot of interest. So it was hilarious that like suddenly it was like scissoring was going to be going up. And I have to say that that experience, it was crazy. We put it up very quickly. Stephanie Fadul is a genius, just wonderful human who I've had the opportunity to collaborate with twice. And I feel so grateful to have her as a friend and collaborator. I couldn't have done it without her. And, you know, hindsight is twenty-twenty. In 2013, 2014, I was so sad that, that play wouldn't get produced. And I couldn't understand why it wouldn't get produced. And it was really difficult. In 2018, I was like, I'm so glad that the chance for this play to be in the world, that I am so much further along as a writer than I was five years ago. I'm a better writer. So even going back in and making those revisions, it is a stronger play, you know? And, you know, it ended up it was my first New York Times review. It was, you know, it was a very positive review. And it was DPS, you know, contacted me about publishing it, which was awesome. And it's published by them now. So, you know, it was a journey, but it really was a success story, ultimately. And I think it is proof that like, just don't like don't give up on things. And also, you just don't know when something might that you think might be dead is is really not dead at
1: all, you know? And it's yeah.
0: So that's a it's a perseverance story.
1: (laughs) So yeah, absolutely a perseverance story. And and I think that we should probably let our listeners who are not familiar with scissoring know what it's about because part of that journey is you couldn't make it happen in twenty thirteen, but I've never seen change happen this quickly in my lifetime. I've been on the planet for about 62 years now, but things have changed in the past 10 years.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: for <laughs> so sure. Tell us what scissoring is about.
0: Yeah, so scissoring, follow, yeah, and it's amazing now that the Supreme Court ruling has happened this past year, but so scissoring is about a woman named Abigail Bauer, who um, works at a Catholic high school in New Orleans, Louisiana. and she kind of reclosets herself to take this job at this Catholic high school. And she loves the job and she's deeply rooted to the place and she's deeply rooted to her Catholicism, but she really struggles because it's really kind of the breaking point of her long-term relationship with her girlfriend. And now she's kind of hiding herself all over again. And the play, you know, when I started it, and even when it was produced in 2018, at that point you could still be fired for being gay. And actually, as of this past year, you no longer can, which is amazing. So
1: story that needed to be told. Yeah, absolutely. A story that needed to be told. So you have been reading a book that you mentioned earlier, Grit by Angela Duckworth, and it sounds like it's had a real impact on you. Do you consider yourself to be somebody with grit?
0: Yeah, I think I have a lot of grit. (laughs) I really do. I've done I've now officially done the Duckworth scale, but I've always thought of myself. And I think actually most people who are in my life would describe me as pretty relentless. I have faced some trials, you know, in my creative life. And like we all do. Listen, being an artist means falling down and getting back up again. Absolutely. And I think that I would define myself by the fact that I'm always getting back up again. And I, um, because I love this, I, I love writing and it's such a privilege. I feel so lucky that I've gotten to a place in my life that I, I actually write for a living. And it's, it's an important thing to remind myself that because I think, you know, sometimes I actually even do an exercise with myself where I will say, look at yourself where you were five years ago. And where you are now, and what would what would you think of yourself? you would be fucking impressed <laughs> so when i'm when that inner critic when Bill is on my doorstep, I try to do that exercise of of gratitude because yeah listen i 'm not you know i 've been lucky to work in TV and film i 'm not you know i'm not gloriously wealthy or anything but i 'm getting by, and that 's something
1: well and then- you know, it's it's been quoted enough that it begins to sound trite, but it is absolutely the truth. If you can earn a living doing a thing that sets your soul on fire, you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. you just will you, will, you will love your life because you're getting to do the thing that you were meant to do. I want to ask you what you think are some important steps or, or a single step that theaters can do to be more supportive of women plus artists.
0: Yeah, my whole thing, I feel like it's like my little soapbox is like, I just want the box mentality to be over. Like, I just, like, stop patting yourself on the back for saying we're doing an all-women season and just do it. Like, just do it. Just hire, you know, it's the same with artists of color. Like, it's just like, okay, like, you have this box. Like, it's like, oh, great, we're having our Black show. And like, we're doing our Latinx show. And like, you know, I, I like it's just so we're all tired. We're all tired, and it's just like, just do it. Like I, I just want theaters to just do the work. Like really, like it's just what I want, and I would love for seasons to just. I mean, I know that there's like marketing and everything, and there's uh, so many levels. I've worked in, I've worked in administration. Like I understand, but it's like I just want theaters to produce plays because they're good because they're excited about the work because it's doing dynamic things, you know, that not because it's like, Oh, we need a black play right now. We need this. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, I, I'm just so exhausted of, of that. I'm so exhausted of boxes and I can't have to tell you like once it, I, you know, I've had so unfortunately a lot of experiences, but I had one experience where a literary manager actually said to me, and this is, you know, now about six, seven years ago, but said to me, I just don't know what to do with you because you're a queer writer and you're a, La- a She said Latina at the time, Latinx wasn't really a thing. She was like, and you're a Latina. And it's just like, where, like, where do you go? Like, how do you p- get programmed? And I was just like, that's the problem. Like, that's the problem. Just program the play because it's good, because you're excited about the work. Like, don't program it because of because of what I look like and who I am, you know? Anyway, that's that's my
1: little my little rant. I love that soapbox issue <laughs> and I am so glad that you are proud to climb up on it and say what you need to say because I've had the same thought. It's like I know that it's February, but we can do a black play in March. Yes. <laughs> you know.
0: 100%. We really can. 100%. Like it's so frustrating and it's like and to be honest, it's like we're training people in this way of being lazy about it, too. Like, it's like, oh, you can only do the Black play in February. You can only do the gay play in June. Like, you can, you know, and it's like, come on, guys. Like, let's let's be more imaginative. Like, it's like, th- sometimes I find it so frustrating, too, because it's like, this is the theater. If we're, there's anywhere that we're imaginative, it should be the theater, you know? <laughs> but... <laughs>
1: Yeah. So let's stretch that muscle because that's the one that's the most important.
0: And that's really what I hope. I hope I hope that when theaters are back, like I really hope that a lot of these theaters are really doing the work in a real way and that we come back, not just to the same old.
1: Yeah. Now, that's a good aspiration. (laughs) There we are. The dream. Yes, it it is the dream. Absolutely. All right. So final question. And this is a question that we ask all of our guests. Who is a woman in theater who inspires you?
0: The first person who literally popped into my head was Tamala Woodard. I don't know if you know her. She's a director. She is now artistic director of the Working Theater, but she formerly was at Women's Project, now WP. She is one of the most like inspiring women I've ever met in the theater. She just, she said to us, you know, this is now, what, almost three years ago, two years ago, that she sat in the room with us and she said what is the invitation of the work that you make? Every time you're making a piece of theater, what is the invitation? And I have not been able to stop thinking about that since she said it. And when the pandemic hit, she said, what does it mean to be hungry in these lean times? And she just, the work she does is so imaginative and exciting and often immersive. And I just really think that she is also such a mentor and such a powerhouse and she's been at it for a long time and not giving up. And I just think, talk about grit, talk about a woman with grit and also just like such humility and love, you know, and I just really, I really respect her a lot.
1: CQ, you have given me and our listeners so much food for thought today and I just want to thank you so much for spending this time with us.
0: Thank you for having me. This has been amazing.
1: Where can our listeners find out more about you and the projects that you have coming up?
0: Yeah, I'm usually pretty good at updating my website. Um, it's cquintana.com. And also my through there, you can get to my like Instagram and Facebook and all that is, all, is cquintana town. So that's C-Q-U-I-N-T-A-N-A um, town.
1: <laughs> Wonderful.
0: Just Google me. You'll find me. <laughs>
1: Thanks so much, CQ. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much, Catherine. This has been amazing. It's been so great to meet you. Same Thank here.
1: You. Same here. Thank you. Thanks again to CQ for that exhilarating interview. Please join us next time when we'll talk with playwright and theater artist Anika mcmillan Herod. Hi, this is Anyika Macmillan-Harrod, co-founder of Soul Rep Theater Company, executive director, and a local playwright and actress. And I am looking forward to joining Echo Theater next week to talk about my newest project, Do No Harm, a commissioned piece based on the lives of three enslaved women who were experimented on by the father of gynecology, Dr. Marion Sims. I'll see you next week. You've been listening to Echo Offstage, Theater Women Speak. We're a production of Echo Theater in Dallas, Texas, a nonprofit theater dedicated to solely producing works by women. I'm your host, Katherine Whiteman. Our producers are Eric Berg and Jenna Burnett. Our audio engineer is Jonathan Villalobos. Our music is by Len Barnett with Brent Nance. Our executive producer is Kateri Kale, Managing Artistic Director at Echo Theater. Find out more about Echo and our mission at echotheater.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at echotheaterdallas. Find these links and more info about today's guest in the show notes.
0: Going dark. Thank you, Dark. Thank you, Dark. Um, and uh, I totally lost the question now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. So-
0: the titles.